Easter has become a little bit of a mishmash between Jesus, hot cross buns, eggs, rabbits and even ancient pagan deities. But where do the associations with eggs, rabbits and even bonnets actually come from? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Why, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. Well, what a couple of weeks this has been. You might have noticed from last week's episode about the folklore of playing cards that I made no mention of coronavirus and that's because I pre-recorded that episode, whereas obviously the one before and this one are both kind of done in the thick of it. And I'm very sorry that this episode is a teensy bit late, as in it's gone out the same day it normally would, but it's going to be later in the day. And that's basically because... I don't know if I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but basically when I had the flu at the end of February, its fun side bonus was it's left me with pleurisy and ridiculous levels of fatigue. But basically it just wiped me out quite a lot, so it took me a little bit longer to get going yesterday to actually write this, and it's taken me a little bit longer to get going this morning than I would have liked. And this is my public service announcement, I think, that if you have seen all of the memes saying that, oh, why don't you just write a book or learn language or do all the things that you always wish you'd done, if you don't feel up to them, don't do them. I hereby give you permission to ignore motivational quotes like that as much as you need to, okay? The only thing you need to listen to is yourself and what you feel up to doing. Now, today I feel up to doing this episode, so we are going to have a look at some of the folklore around Easter and you might wonder why I'm doing this this week instead of next week which is Easter Saturday and I'm very sorry if you're actually using the podcast to work out what day it is because I must admit I haven't got a clue and I've basically decided to do this week early so that you had the Easter stuff before Easter rather than having it like on the day. Next week we're going to be looking at Jack in the Green and sort of stuff around sort of like nature and, and, and spring and so on so hopefully if you haven't been getting outside very much That'll be like a balm to the soul, hopefully. But yes, we're doing Easter today. And if you do say Easter to most people, they probably will think of eggs or rabbits or occasionally chicks, which you also get in some of the Easter adverts for the UK. And, you know, some people might go one step further and actually think about Jesus or hot cross buns or even ancient pagan deities. And to be honest, the whole thing has become a little bit of a mishmash of all of these things. And there's quite a lot of religious stuff still in there for people who follow particular organised mainstream religions. And then there's also plenty of things for people who don't as well. So basically, it's a little bit like Christmas and Halloween in that regard. And I have touched on at least one Easter tradition before over on my blog. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. It was the practice of adding a hot cross bun to a collection of such at the Widow Sun Tavern in London. But this time we're going to explore how eggs, bunnies and bonnets came to be associated with Easter. So let's get into this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. (laughs) 
So before we go any further, one of the things I wanted to have a look at is the slightly thorny issue of Easter's actual name. And if you browse almost any article about Easter online, most of them will say that the festival took its name from a pagan goddess, Yostra. And many of them will also say that she was a fertility goddess. Or was she? Now, this connection between Easter and an apparent goddess called Yostra dates to the Venerable Bede, who, if you don't know who he is, he was basically a very early Christian scholar who knocked about in my neck of the woods, well, a bit further south in Jarrow. And I say it was an apparent goddess because Bede claimed that the Anglo-Saxons named the year's fourth month Eostamonath. And Bruce David Forbes actually notes that Bede pays scant attention to it and he only actually uses two sentences to explain that Eostamonath came from Eostra. So obviously it's not really a huge deal as far as Bede's concerned. And the problem is... Jacqueline Simpson and Steve Rowd in the very excellent Dictionary of English Folklore make the point that no one can actually confirm the existence of Eostra as a deity. And Bruce Forbes points out that there are no art, carvings or religious objects which would corroborate her existence either. And if she was important enough to have an annual feast named after her, you'd think there'd be some evidence lying around. And if you look at other gods of similar vintage like Woden or Thor, there's plenty of evidence for them. And there's just not really, there's nothing for Yostra. And because she doesn't appear anywhere else, some scholars think that Bede must have just worked backwards from the name of the season and assumed that the name came from a deity. Patrick Wigington, by comparison, suggests that Yostra might have been a local goddess in Kent in southern England, which would explain why there's no evidence for her elsewhere. And because Bede was a Christian scholar and not a poet, it does seem a bit weird to think that he might have simply made her up, but rather the possibility for mistranslation has a lot more weight to it. So in short, this Eostra Easter comment basically came from these two sentences in what Bede had said about where Eostra Monath came from as a name for what is essentially what we call April. Now, Eostra might have actually languished in the writings of Bede had it not been for Jacob Grimm, who you might know the name, and he's one half of the Brothers Grimm. And in 1835, he actually brought Bede's works back to light, as it were. And it was him who tried to link Eostra with Ostara, a Germanic goddess. And Bruce Forbes explains that basically the problem was Grimm used language as his main tool, and he was basically looking for similar names in early Indo-European languages and cultures. Now, his first mistake was to assume that any of these similar names all referred to the same goddess. His second mistake was to argue that Eostra Ostara must have been very important for Christians to tolerate her name being used for Easter. And it's a reasonable assumption, but it's also incredibly difficult to prove when there is no evidence for the existence of Eostra anyway. There are other contenders for the name. And the Greek mythology fans among you will recognise Eos as the goddess of the dawn. And Simpson and Raud point out that it's entirely possible that April marked the start or dawn of a new year for the Anglo-Saxons. So yes, a goddess would still be involved, but it's not the one that we think. And Forbes also points to this link because Easter and East have the same root. And the sun rises in the East beginning a new day, which then carries the connotations of the new life that begins in spring. So basically what it boils down to is Bede possibly mistranslated a name or, I mean, with good reason. I mean, you can see his logical assumption why he would come up with that conclusion. And then Jacob Grimm just runs with it. 
And even though there's no evidence of worship of this particular goddess, it doesn't stop people from repeating this connection as fact, like absolute fact. And I mean, every single year you'll see all over Instagram or, you know, in the magazines, everyone sort of flat out like, yeah, Yostra was a goddess of this and Astara was a goddess of that. And it's just like, well, why do you all quote the same source then? Because if you look at what they say, they're all incredibly similar because they're all basically just parroting each other. And I did actually find a piece on Time Magazine's website while I was researching this. And it outright states that the Easter rabbit, and I quote, stems from pagan tradition, specifically the festival of Yostra, a goddess of fertility whose animal symbol was a bunny, end quote. Now, the links between hares and Celtic deities absolutely do exist, but it's kind of hard to claim an animal symbol for a goddess whose worship few can find any evidence for. And Forbes points out that Bede at no point says what Yostra even presided over. And he said nothing about her association with any animals or objects. So quite why people are like, yes, she's a goddess of fertility and there's a pagan tradition around her festival and her symbol. You, you can't say that because where's the evidence? Like, where's this coming from? And basically people have just inferred things or added them ad hoc over the years. And that's how we've now ended up with people repeating this connection as fact despite the fact that there's very little evidence for it. Now, obviously, Eostra is supposedly a fertility goddess, and we can't really talk about Easter as a fertility festival and not talk about Easter eggs. Now, eggs traditionally represent new life and abundance, and Forbes does try to avoid any of the attempts to draw links between earlier pagan egg symbols and Christianity. Yes, the ancient Egyptians did believe that the universe hatched out of an egg, and you find other myths around the world which give the egg very similar symbolism. But in, in all of these, the egg becomes a general symbol, a little bit like the circle in Forbes's example. And it's not a specifically pagan symbol, it's just one that everybody recognises because it means the same thing sort of everywhere. And Forbes even finds evidence of practices involving Easter eggs as far back as the Middle Ages. And in 1290, King Edward I in England actually ordered 450 eggs to be coloured or covered with gold leaf and then handed out among his household. And you can also find similar practices in Russia. If you then fast forward far enough, you then end up with the Fabergé egg is basically the natural conclusion of this particular impulse to richly decorate eggs. Now, eggs themselves were not to be eaten during Lent. So those that weren't used for hatching were hard-boiled for consumption at Easter so that you would still have something that you could could eat at Easter. And this led to all manner of fun and japes involving the hard-boiled eggs because obviously they last a lot longer. Now, people would decorate them by dyeing them and they might use natural substances like coffee grounds, onion skins or even wild plants. In some places, people obviously painted onto them with wax and then dyed them and then obviously when you peel the wax away, it leaves sort of white lines on the eggshells. There are some beautiful ones from the Ukraine where it's it's kind of like an ongoing practice to do these richly decorated eggs. But the eggs also form the centrepiece in popular games. And in Carlisle, children would actually knock hard-boiled eggs against each other like conkers. And if your egg broke first, you basically had to give it to the victor as spoils of war. And children might also roll the hard-boiled eggs down hills or along paths until they cracked and at that point they'd eat them. I can't imagine them being particularly appetising because, you know, I'm thinking if they've hit a whole load of rocks and things, surely they're going to kind of be full of dirt. But whatever, people obviously found their fun where they could. 
And some people also think that the egg rolling represents the rolling of the stone away from the mouth of Jesus's tomb. That said, there doesn't really seem to be much evidence to support this. And I think the rolling egg thing might just be because it's relatively easy to do and it's something that you can do with something that you've got to hand anyway. Obviously, people would then hide quite brightly coloured hard-boiled eggs in their garden for their children to find them. And we don't tend to play games like conkers and stuff with hard-boiled eggs now, but the, the Easter egg hunt does live on even into the, the present day. And parents will now use the usually terrible chocolate eggs and they basically hide them around the garden. And speaking of chocolate eggs, according to history.com, the world's largest Easter egg was over 25 feet high and it actually had an internal steel frame that held it up and it was made of chocolate and marshmallow. But, you know, I just love the fact that somebody was like, I'm going to build the world's largest Easter egg and I'm going to have to do all this fabrication of a steel frame to hold it together. So that's dedication for you, really. There is a sense that people then started to say that the eggs had been laid by the Easter rabbit. And this is where we're going to then move into discussing the Easter bunny. And people do associate rabbits and hares with Easter, largely due to the fact that they represent fertility and new life. Because let's be honest, rabbits in particular are quite prolific breeders. And Forbes points out that hares were actually sacred to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and beauty. So basically they do make an ideal symbol for a festival that's already preoccupied with rebirth and regeneration. So while the Easter rabbit is a relatively new invention, you can actually find the Easter hare in the historical record. And you can find references to him in German-speaking countries all the way back to around about 1572. Other people say it's 1600. Either way, it's all of the medieval period. And children made nests so that the Easter hare could then leave eggs for them. And good children would get eggs, but bad children didn't, which basically turned the Easter hare into a kind of furry, long-legged St. Nicholas. As yet, I haven't found an Easter equivalent of Krampus, but that's probably for the best. And German settlers then took the concept to America, where they continued the practice and then it eventually morphed into its current form. And at some point, the hare stopped being a hare and became a rabbit and is now basically the bunny. And Forbes points out that the Easter rabbit basically took hold in colonial America because there weren't really many other Easter traditions at the time. So it didn't really have anything else to compete with. So people did it because it was the only thing that they really had. And he also thinks that the hare morphed into a rabbit because, you know, the hare representing sexuality is all well and good. But if you want your kids to get involved, you want something probably a little bit more family friendly. And obviously bunnies are like, you know, they're cuddly and they're cute. And I mean, hares box, you know what I mean? Whereas obviously rabbits don't. Although if you've ever had a pet rabbit, you'll know that they're incredibly strong willed when they want to be. But bunnies are a lot more child friendly than hares. And this is kind of where the Easter bunny comes from by comparison. Now, this wouldn't be a fabulous folklore episode if we didn't have a look at some other Easter lore. And Coraline Daniels and C.M. Stevens back in 1903 collected a whole range of Easter related lore and superstitions. And I want to just quickly share some of them with you now. And according to them, if you took a branch off a fruit tree two Sundays before Easter Sunday, so obviously that would have been like the Sunday was just gone if you're doing it now. So apologies for that. And you then put this branch in water, it would blossom on Easter Sunday. And there was also a connection between the willow tree and Easter. So if you want to find love, you should take your shoe off and throw it at the tree. And if it got caught among the branches, you would then marry that year. But you only get nine attempts at actually throwing it. So, you know, just bear that in mind. And if you planted a willow tree at Easter, it would then protect whatever field it stood in from storm damage, which is worth knowing. 
Mariners wouldn't eat fish on Easter Day because they believed that that would then keep them safe from storms at sea. And finally, Easter was also traditionally a time to get new clothes, which is an idea that basically dates to the 16th century. And there is even a reference to it in Romeo and Juliet, the fact that somebody wears a new doublet before Easter. Samuel Pepys refers to it, and he points out that at Easter, quote, they might see the fashions as they are like to be this summer, end quote. So there's a concept here that like the fashion basically changed at Easter. And in a way, you kind of see that a little bit now in the fashion industry, where you have sort of the spring, summer and autumn, winter collections. And, you know, obviously fashions do change with the seasons. And not getting new clothes could bring you bad luck. And you could even expect to be dropped on by birds. You can figure out what that means for yourself. And you could be spat at by dogs just because you didn't get new clothes. People would give and receive new gloves at Easter, which I think would be an incredible idea to do that this year. But it was especially men to their sweethearts and tenants to their landlords. So that's worth bearing in mind. And Forbes also notes, and, and, and basically Forbes himself points this out, but it does make sense that this tradition... You can see where it comes from because people who survived the winter would need to change their clothes with the season because obviously Easter, April, spring, it's starting to warm up and everything and you know you're going to want to to dress differently accordingly. Now the tradition of wearing new outfits basically gave rise to New York's Easter parade in the 1870s and 1880s and this is basically when the well-to-do would go out to their church services on Fifth Avenue and then they would basically go promenading in their spring outfits and this tradition then eventually ended up leading to Judy Garland's 1948 film Easter Parade and nowadays you do still sometimes get parades but they're a bit less of a fashion show and they're more of a carnival and I do think that the parade kind of lives on through the concept of Easter bonnets and this is something that my primary school used to do and I would love to know if your primary school did the same thing particularly if you're in the UK so please drop me a tweet or message me on Instagram just to let me know if, if, if your school did this as well but we used to have this Easter bonnet parade and you would basically, like a couple of weeks before, you would make an Easter bonnet out of usually cardboard and tissue paper. And I remember one year making a really oversized version of Robin Hood's hat, because you know why not, out of yellow cardboard. And then you'd make like tissue paper flowers and stuff and you'd decorate it. And then you'd basically have an Easter bonnet parade through the school hall where they would kind of make like a little mini catwalk out of these box things and then all the students would sort of parade along them and while the the caretaker played the piano and you know you would show off your Easter bonnet and I used to really enjoy that mainly because it was making stuff and making stuff is literally like my favourite thing to do ever so if I have the opportunity to craft something I absolutely will and it's the thing that's always stuck in my mind about Easter more so than the Easter eggs so I just I'd love to know if other people had that tradition as well. But this is basically where the idea came from. It's this idea of wearing your finery and going out and showing it off to the world that you have your new clothes at Easter. So that is basically where the link comes from. And I do quite like that one because it you know it's got nothing to do with you know fertility festivals or eggs or anything like that. It's just it absolutely makes sense to get new clothes in the spring. So that is the end of this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It did go on a little bit longer, but that's just because I had a lot to say. And I will see you next week, as I say, for Jack and the Green. Later on in April, because we are having like a spring theme, I will be having a look at the Persephone myth, which helps to explain why we have seasons. And then finally, we're going to have a look at weather superstitions, because one of my favourite sort of things to do with April is the concept of April showers. 
and it's that the song April Shows is the only thing I like about the Disney film Bambi because everything else about it to my mind is quite traumatic. So yeah, so we're going to have a look at weather superstitions because we've never really covered them to that extent here on Fabulous Folklore. And then I'm also going to announce already that May is going to be Maker Month. So we're going to be having a look at things like the folklore of blacksmithing and weaving and things like that. If you do have any requests for anything, please, as ever, leave a comment or let me know. And I'll try and fit them in because I do love making sure that you get to hear the things you're interested in. If you're sick of being in the house and you just want someone to chat to, again, please message me because, I mean, I, I really will just talk to anyone online. And I'm going to let you go now, basically because I've got to edit this and then put it up so you can listen to it. Ooh, the paradox. So have a really lovely week ahead. Please stay safe. Look after each other. Make sure everybody's okay. And I'd Because re- I really just want to make sure that you're here next week and you're fine and you're safe and you're well and everything like that. So I will see you soon. Cheerio.